0: Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you still with us here on the Mark Steiner Show. And I'm going to remind you as we join this conversation, the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's Credit Union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. Remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank. It belongs to you. Money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or at steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. We, all, we talked yesterday live as the decision was coming down from the court um, that acquitted Lieutenant Brian Rice of all charges. Uh, and we talked about it yesterday. We're talking about it again in this half hour of the Mark Steiner Show In the studio once again with us is Dave Von Love, Director of Research and Public Policy for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, co-author of the black book, Reflections from the Baltimore Grassroots, and one of those who was arrested in a demonstration on Saturday while he was observing. You were just observing, right? You weren't blocking, you were observing, but was taken away anyway. Mm. Doug Colbert's with us, (laughs) Uh, professor of law at the University of Maryland School of Law, who's been here many times covering this trial and for other issues as well, and the Reverend Kevin Slayton, pastor of the New Waverly uh, United Methodist Church and president of the interdenominational ministerial alliance of Metropolitan Baltimore and welcome. Good to have you all with us. Thanks, Good to be here, Mark. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can write to us by email to talk at Steinershow dot org. Uh you can uh also um tweet us at Mark Steiner, log onto our Facebook pages four one oh three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Um okay so Start off with a tweet. Why not? Let's just start there. Uh, from, um, I'm not sure how you say this tweet's name, but M.S. Libitz, 15, uh, tweets in, I feel that no one will be held responsible for, for Freddie's death. There is no way to prove who inflicted the fatal injury. I th- we talked about that yesterday in the program, as a matter of fact, and someone challenged me on the air. We went back and forth about that. We don't know concretely yeah. how his windpipe was crushed. How he was his back was hurt, somebody called in to say, "You heard Dr. Ben Carson say that the police officer's knee in his back could could have caused that n- neurological damage, but you know mm-hmm. there's been no there was no second examiner 's report there was no other testimony to to that to that case we no, we don 't know mm-hmm. i think kevin that 's one of the i mean and it looks as if we won 't know concretely, and we looks like no one will be held accountable for this young man 's death
1: I, I think it's the what what the person was expressing, I did hear that, is not so much that we don't know, to, to your point, but sort of being asked to say we don't know what we saw. So what you saw, you did not see. And I, I think that's where a lot of folks are. I don't even think folks are in the van when they talk about guilt and whether or not it happens. I think people make that conclusion upon seeing him drug to the truck. And I, I think... They're, they feel as they sense as though they're being asked to say you did not see that, so you have to make your decision on innocence or guilt based on after that. And and I have a larger
0: question. I think is even more important in some ways. But 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 on before we turn to Dr. on I, I think that that particular issue because this really is part of the subtext and maybe not 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 sub, the subtext of conversation happening in the community that everything happened outside the van. That's kind of a common wisdom, mm-hmm. but we again, we really don't even know that. I mean, you saw somebody who looked like he was hurt, mm-hmm. but we don't physically know exactly what happened,
2: and we still don't. Yeah, I mean, I think a part of the issue is that the institution of law enforcement is a very insular enterprise where access to information, in order to get a clear understanding of what happened, is hard to get to because they've organized themselves in such a way where only they know what happened. And it's so insular that folks from the outside who don't have a professional interest in the officers being acquitted are not present to help be a deterrent of that kind of behavior and give us that kind of information. And I think it's important for the listeners to understand that the reason that there's so much mystification about what happened, although, as to what Reverend Slayton said, we saw a video where Freddie Gray appeared to be hurt, um, the only way that you can see that on video— And then get the outcomes that we're getting is some kind of institutional arrangement where there isn't access to information that will help us for certain know, you know, what it was that caused Freddie Gray to die. And and I think that is not an indictment. So I don't see the acquittals as a validation of the position of law enforcement. I see the acquittal as an indictment on the ability for us to have transparency about the the behavior of law enforcement. Right. Because if if you can't if, if the evidence is such that you can't effectively prosecute officers who clearly had some role in the death of Freddie Gray, um, then it, it says something about the system's inability, not that law enforcement, that there aren't problems with law enforcement or there isn't brutality. It's an indictment on, on law enforcement's ability to be accountable to the community.
3: Yeah, and I I agree with with uh, both what Davon and, and and the Reverend are saying because we need to focus on whether the justice system is able to render justice uh, when a person dies in police custody and and we can look at the facts in this case, Mark. And I could disagree with those who think we don't know what happened in that van. We do know that the lieutenant was in command, that the lieutenant uh, ordered the shackling and handcuffing and placing Freddie Gray on the floor of a metal van inches away from hitting his head against the side of that van. We do know that he was in an extremely vulnerable situation and that it was certainly likely that something was going to be happening to him to cause serious injury. But until we deal uh, with the public's interest in learning the truth and in requiring officers who are witness to these events to come forward until we eliminate the police code of silence, uh, which may serve the interests of the individual officers, it may serve the interests of the union, but it does not serve the public interest in rendering justice in cases like this one. Well, I, I and if, get, if,
2: if I can add something really quickly. The, so... The FOP, I'm sure you, you reported on this, the, the lawsuit against the city for opening up – the attempting to open up the trial boards. See, right. to, to, and the And the
0: information sent to um, uh, uh, the civilian review board about right. a, a police officer right. that they said was private information.
2: Right. Right, right. right. I think see, – see, to me, there's a really simple equation that needs to be put forward. Either law enforcement is interested in transparency and wants the public involved in the decision-making or they're not interested in transparency and, therefore, we should suspect in instances like this that they are prone to engage in the kind of corruption that we would thwart if there was civilian participation. You can't have it both ways, and I think that's really important to communicate to the union and to those who represent law enforcement. If the
0: union was here and they're not, they would say – um, nobody can, should be assuming you should not be on a police review board because trial board because they don't understand police procedure what it means to be a cop. And only police should judge right. police. That would be the argument, right? Right. right? So, um, but it begs a lot of other questions. It seems to me. I mean, first of all, we saw that there is this whether you agree with how this case has been run or not by the state's attorney's office. I know, Doug, you have strong ideas about you know agreeing on how they ran the case, and, and there's a lot of debate around that. But the the This this is also kind of a vitriolic attack locally and now nationally against Marilyn Mosby. And in many ways, I think, as um, a young black woman running a state's attorney's office. And this has become another political question. I mean, the question of. The question of, of police and, and police being prosecuted or police being brought uh, to, to, stand, uh, to, to to answer for things that happened in the community are the reasons she was elected and why Bernstein lost. And now it's the critique of why she needs to go. Do you know what I'm saying? There's, there's, a, there's a real political, political dynamic here as well. It was last time the Republican Convention. Uh, when they had the chief of Milwaukee police going after uh, Mosby, who also was African-American, which was very significant, I think, just in terms of the games that are being played on, on the world. So, Kevin, this is, there's a lot here. There's not just it's, – it's, it's becoming a very complex thing.
1: Yeah, at, at almost every turn, it's very difficult. Even though you may try and pull yourself out of it, Mark, issues of race keep floating in the backdrop. Historically, persons who assumed to Maryland's position um, – by the folks who support her uh, financially and with their, their footwork. There's an expectation that once you assume that seat, you will follow suit um, as the, those that have come before you have done. And she has not played by that book at all. Um, and for many, that is quite frustrating. But I think for this generation, that is empowering. Um, and I, I think the, the the pushback that we hear from one set of voices, will meet at the center with that other pushback that they're just excited um, and glad to know that somebody uh, was willing to at least take the first step. And it's, it's been
3: so rare, Mark, in the history of this country that there's ever been local prosecutors who would speak for the Freddie Grays of, of our community. Right. Uh, and and people know the history. It's an ugly history. It's a history that denied personhood to people of African ancestry for more than two centuries. It denied uh, uh, people the the opportunity to be judged fairly. At first, it was the all white jury, and 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 then it's not giving people's life and freedom. Uh, the, the the protection that's required. So when you have a Marilyn Mosby or when you have a justice system that now stands ready to prosecute officers who do wrong, well, that's a very different scenario. And it's one that, frankly, there has been a very sharp critique and outcry from the moment that uh, the prosecution brought charges in this case, calling for her dismissal, calling for her disbarment, calling for a change of venue. Uh, and, and keep in mind that what she's what What they're up against is they don't get the cooperation of the police witnesses whom usually a prosecutor depends upon, uh, and so every virtually every police witness who testifies has tried their best to help the defense in this case, and then how difficult must it be to be trying the same case? before the same jury in this case the judge but the judge is the jury so you could imagine what it must be like if a jury returned a not guilty verdict and then you're left to argue the next case before the same fact finder that's got to be extremely difficult there are ways I think that the prosecution can do something more for the next trial Um, but we're we're looking at such an outcry by those who have always opposed uh, prosecution in this case. And
0: again, I I mean, Dwight Pettit's not here, but Dwight Pettit, when he has been here, has made it clear, even though he supports these trials and supports what she's done in bringing these trials, he thought there was a lot missing in these cases. And he's mentioned that over and over again on the show, from not calling the witnesses who saw what happened um, and using that, not getting another medical examiner to, to, look at the, to look at the body and make a decision about when, the, when when he might have died, I mean, there are lots of, I mean, there are a lot of things here that, I mean, from all sides um, that, that come to play here. Notwithstanding, it's monumental and historical that a state's attorney has brought charges against six police officers in the death of a young black man in Baltimore. Uh, or anywhere else in America. So, I mean, but let, let me go to the phones. at 319 Mark, if I can
3: just interject one thing, which is I've been at the trial each and every right. one, and I can tell you from my opinion that the prosecution has brought a strong case against each of the offices.
0: Right. I, I know there's no argument about that. I mean, then we can have legal debates about that. We had them on the show bef- as well. But, I mean, I think that there's something larger, I think, than the trials even, which just has to do with our system of justice, and police procedure that's acceptable. Where it's acceptable to body slam a human being to the ground. Anthony Anderson. Where it's acceptable to put your knee in somebody's neck and back to hold them down and cause injury. Those things are acceptable. And maybe those things shouldn't be acceptable as a way that police proceed. You know, once you've got a person handcuffed, the person's handcuffed. If you lay cuff them, you lay cuff them, you pick them up, you put them in the police fan, or you put them in the police car and you take them away.
1: Who d- who determines it's acceptable or not? Well, we have to determine that. The city, the community has to determine that. And so it should be that same community who determines whether or not it's acceptable to have a state's attorney who's at least willing to prosecute.
0: No, right. All right. Well, let me go to the phone. So 410-319-8888. Clarence, you're on the air.
1: Thank you, Mr. Steiner.
4: Um, yeah, P- Professor Colbert, I'm going to call you Justice Colbert for this call. <laughs> So how far am I going to get with you with the argument that given the undue influence that FOPs have on the administration of justice and swaying public opinion for things that are obviously crimes against um, human individual rights, that they are repugnant to the Constitution in the way that they're operating now? How far am I going to get with you with that
3: argument? You are going to get very far with me because our whole system depends on a check and balance on power. And the only check and balance on police power is going to come from either the other branches of government or from the people themselves. Uh, And so when we look at a union and we see that it has a responsibility to the public to serve, to protect, to safeguard, and to secure, keep people safe, then when the people are able to speak and say, "We do not want this kind of policing. We want a different kind of policing." That message will be heard uh, by the justices as well as by uh, the elected officials.
0: Damon, we haven't heard from you a lot. A few minutes, but what do you think about everything we just said and heard before we go back to the phones?
3: Yeah,
2: I mean, I just—I mean, one of the things that I wanted to just address, you know talking about the police union, you know, the obstruction, um, you know, of of really getting police accountability. And you made the argument that they would say, you know, it's a certain profession and certain professional things that you would have to learn. And and for me, I think what gets lost is, you know, if, if public safety is a public good, then we are the consumer. We determine whether or not the service is being rendered in a way that's satisfactory to us. And so the idea that policing is this profession that requires certain kinds. And I understand the importance of having certain kinds of requisite training to observe, to participate. But to make the argument that, you know, civilians can't participate in disciplining police officers, can't participate in the process where information is gathered to make sure that the police are behaving in ways that the public would be satisfied with. I just think these are ways to undermine accountability. Um, and and, it, and it's important for us to voice the concern of the importance of having civilians present at every part of the process to make sure that you know prosecutors for instance have the information they need to properly prosecute to be able to undermine, a lot of the cronyism that happens. You know, folks are they have a professional interest in behaving the way they do. There's a professional interest in certain kinds of information not being available to the public. And in what other context, what other context would it be acceptable for information to only be housed within an industry that's supposed to serve the public and the public not have a right to the information?
4: It's just it's just crazy.
0: Let me try to get back to the phones here and get a couple of callers in a four one oh three one nine eighty eight eighty eight and Randy you're on the air. Welcome.
4: Yes, good morning i I um wanted to I'll try to speak really quickly here. Um, I'm thinking of drama, the drama of Freddie Gray um, as the people's court, um, where maybe creative minds in Baltimore or wherever can come up with maybe a trilogy in the spirit of Greek tragedy, the Greek tragedy where we the first night you go, you're going to see Freddie Gray. Development, his life. The next night, you go and you see how this society and how Freddie Gray um, kind of collide, and then that this next night, maybe there's the final play, and that's the trial that is a complete farce. And we can do whatever we want with this justice system in terms of the farce. Um, Call them out and and the. The hugely satiric impact of that is healing because the people will have a chance to to it's cathartic, you heal and what needed to be said was finally said. And maybe we can lay this matter to rest because our officials have failed us. There is no one who believes, I think in the right mind, you know, who lives in the city and watched that guy, you know, the victim being brutally beaten or uh, attacked, and then no one can speak. We don't have a voice. No one can testify or witness to it. Uh, they're, they're excluded. And the, this thing right. went on. This uh, uh, process just took its, its course the way, pre- according to prescription, not according to justice. And so um, that's my comment.
0: Right, Randy, thanks so much. Reverend Slayton, you have something to say about that?
1: The, the idea that um, we want to sort of, I guess, promote it as some type of theater is somewhat disturbing to me because um, I think people who live with it every day don't see the entertainment in it.
3: Well, theater is also a place where we learn a lot, Mark, and without this trial... The practice uh, that uh, Freddie Gray experienced would continue, and it would continue. We'd have more victims uh, injured or killed in in a police van. So, I'm encouraged, and I do see. I always look for what's in the glass, not what's missing, because it's the only way to, to 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 move forward. So, I am encouraged that the police commissioner, who has his own internal struggle with the union and the power of the union. Um, at least now there's going to be videos in Van. At least now there's going to be emails that officers cannot say, I didn't read, I didn't look at them. Uh, those are pretty weak excuses that were used during the trial to show that the lieutenant and others didn't have the information. So perhaps from this moment forward, we can look forward to not seeing other Freddie Grays lose their lives in, in custody.
0: I mean, I think maybe, you know, we've raised this on the show before. Maybe it's time to really really push and rethink um, in this next administration and with these new city council people, a, a very different way of public safety. You know, I mean, it, 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 someone said in this program the other week, and I forget who it was at this moment because so many people say so many things. I don't have them all in mm-hmm. my head. But it was that, is, is that most communities in our society, in this city, self-police. that the policing to and over is done in poor black communities. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and so maybe there's a different way to think about what even public safety means.
2: Well, I mean, I think the idea—see, police don't make communities safer. The police presence does not stop crime. If you invest in the ability of the community to be able to address the concerns in its own community, then you have an effective community. And so when we talk about public safety, police should be the last line of defense. You know, police are the folks that show up when things get really bad and really out of control.
0: And usually after a crime has been committed.
2: Mm-hmm. Not right. bef-
0: not while or before.
2: Right, right. And so, and so I think, I mean, and given the fact that long, you know, public safety is a third of the city's budget, you know, why not take some of that money, 10%, you know, something, and give it to organizations that actually do the work that prevents um, what people see as having the need for law enforcement, but the reason why that does not that didn't happen, and this goes back to the union. There, there's an industry around policing. There's an industry that a lot of people get paid. You talking about lobbyists? You're talking about advocates for the union. You know, I mean, their ideology isn't just their zeal about you know their warped views of the world. I mean, that's a part of it, mm-hmm. but the other part of it is there's huge money. You know, in the industry of policing and law enforcement, just like there's huge money in incarceration. I mean, there's huge money in it, Um, and and so just to think about how perverse that is—that you know, communities um, that are populated mainly by people of African descent having to be subject to forms of police violence, the union that benefits from it. That negotiates contracts that keeps our communities from being able to redress issues of of brutality in against our community is something that there's an industry that benefits from that. I mean, I, th- I think that's something that we should all see as perverse. Um, and and I think the union itself should be called to question. I think there need to be, and I mean, they avoid it, but the union should have to speak in a context where they're held accountable for the consequences of the contracts to negotiate and the policies that, that they support and advocate for.
1: There's, there's a, a, a level of compassion, I think, uh, that should emerge, not just from people of faith, just seeing folks who live in conditions and under um, conditions that they wouldn't want for themselves. There is a biblical principle there, basis anyway, that's just sort of, do unto others. as you I would want the same treatment, and I'm reminded of an article in the... Um, one of the Boston papers, right after the the, the bombing there, during the marathon. The white woman says in the article that um, she just felt overwhelmed. She felt trapped in her home hours after the incident because there were helicopters flying around. Um, Folks had been told to stay in their homes, uh, not to come out, and it was not safe because they were looking for this one criminal. And I'm thinking, you know, the folks you know, just a few blocks from her in the Dorchester community, that's their reality every day. For people here in Baltimore, Oliver Park Heights, that's their reality every day. The compassion from all of us, I mean, we, we, we're big on this now. I mean, we've got to see the conditions in which that so many of our brothers and sisters in the city live in and have some t- type of compassion that causes us to, to move our advocacy from beyond just our community into others, into, into areas that we're not even comfortable with, to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to sort of live this American dream.
0: Let me open the phones and come right back to Doug before we have to leave the conversation. 410-319-8888. Lindy, you're on the air.
5: <clears throat> yeah, hi. Good morning. Um, good morning. I'm a, a nurse in a Baltimore City hospital. Um, I've been a nurse for over 30 years, and I, I've definitely seen a big change. But I want to make a comment about the value of the police officer's security in the hospital. I work on a floor where I deal with a lot of heroin um, overdose, I, uh, IVDA, um, a lot of alcohol, um, overdose, um, these patients, schizophrenia. Some of them are coming from Shepherd Pratt, um, some come from Baltimore City jails, handcuffs. And, you know, the police officer's security is a valuable part of my job because there are times where they're, they become aggressive and violent. And if I didn't have them available, at my disposal to be able to call them, I would be unable to do my job safely nor keep my patients and staff in the hospital safe. I I also did home care in Baltimore City, so I'm well aware of some of the challenges that that the people um, have to face as they live there, more so the Afro-Americans. But we also have to remember that if we didn't have the police officers there to support us and help us do our job, we would be unable to assist and help those people that really need the help. So, you know, I I, I don't like the context of when people attack police officers and security. I know there are bad people in every profession, just the bad nurses and bad doctors. Um, But I think in the, the bottom line is that, you know, people need help, and they're the first lines of defense, especially in the hospital, because since I've been working... As a nurse, I've seen the need increase even more so, and I and I love my job. The people I work with are wonderful. The people I meet, the patients, they all have stories, and I listen to their stories. I'm blessed that I'm not facing the things that they have to face. But you know, we all need to care about each other, no matter what race or whatever. Right. We need to not stereotype, and we really need to have compassion. And the police officers that come to my health. Their compassion. I had one situation. We're almost out of time,
0: Linda. I'm sorry. But could you just wrap that up? We're almost out of time. I apologize.
5: Yeah, no, that's it. I just wanted to say thank you to the people that helped me okay. and my father's police officer security we have like that a, come out. You know, and Linda, and thank really you so
0: much. We, we have like a minute left, so I do apologize having to cut cut that off. A little yeah, a minute yeah, left. Just
2: really quickly, I just think this is we're not. There's not an attack on police officers. Mm-hmm. It's about the practices that make it difficult to hold police accountable for the things that happen to folks in our community. That's what folks are interested in. And if police are serious about that, then we need to be, have open conversations about deterring the behavior that causes suspicion of law enforcement.
3: Yeah, and I think it's so important to understand that there are many police officers, the majority in my opinion, who actually conduct themselves – Properly, But what was done in this case was contrary to what the argument is. It was not done professionally. It was not done correctly. And that's what I would love to hear the union come out and say that we can do a better job.
0: And we do have to stop here. But this, we will come back to this. And, and, uh, and I would just add as we're going out of here in 10 seconds, we, we should have this debate on the air. I do think they were doing their job the way they were supposed to be doing it. The problem is people are not doing – that. that should not be part of the job. That's part of the problem. I think, that, that we're facing. But I don't – you know, it's a, there's a difference between a bad cop and there's procedures that allow them to do things that hurt human beings who are poor and black in our communities. That's the problem. So we have to take a break. We've got to hit the Republican National Convention. I want to thank our guest, Dave Von Love. Always good to have you in the studio, man. Always.
3: Yep. yep. Appreciate
0: it. Uh, and my dear friend, Doug Holbrook, good to have you here. Thank you, Mark. And uh, Reverend Ken Slayton is staying with us to talk about Republicans. Don't go away. <laughs>